according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, once again in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9. We will conclude the chapter today, Hebrews chapter 9, getting ready to cross over into Hebrews chapter 10. I've said several times that Hebrews is my favorite book out of all 66 books. Hebrews is my favorite, and chapter 10 is my favorite chapter within uh, my favorite book, and so I'm very anxious to, uh, to get to chapter 10 and, and, uh, because it's a crescendo. It is really the culmination of chapters 1 through 9 that get brought to a summary, get brought to a close. Then we get into chapter 11 and 12, we get the Hall of Fame of Faith and some other issues, some other applications faith applications, priesthood applications in chapter 13. So really, chapter 10 forms the crescendo of the priesthood portion as we've been learning about our Melchizedek priesthood in Christ and the blessings that we have to enter within the veil, to stand before the glory of God the Father as redeemed people, as believer priests. And so we have the blessing here to be able to to do this. All right. Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. That's Hebrews 9.27. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Before we begin this morning, let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father in his faithfulness to lead our time of study. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning so thankful. We're remembering, Father, your grace, your glory, the provision you've made for each one of us. That, Father, you sent your Son to take our place on the cross. That by his sacrifice, Father, we may have eternal life. And more than that, Father, that is simply the beginning of a good work. And you are faithful to complete that good work you started in each one of us. I thank you, Father, that good work includes our growth in grace and knowledge. That good work includes our worship in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. And so, Father, we're here to grow. We're here to worship. We're here to fulfill your plan for our lives. And we call upon your faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding, the ears of our hearing. Take the living and abiding word of God, Father, and implant it within our soul. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so really the conclusion of chapter 9 is spotlighting uh, a number of things as it relates to uh, the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament and how they were shadows. They were simply representative of a reality. They were not the reality. Jesus is the reality. Shadows can only point to the substance. Jesus provides the substance. And so shadows are done over and over again, and shadows are repeated uh, year after year after year. Day of Atonement comes around every year, and here we go again. For the Jewish people, it's a reminder of sin year by year. And so they can, they can fulfill the law, they can be obedient to the law, their priesthood can offer their animal ritual sacrifices according to the law, but none of those animal ritual sacrifices are going to perfect any Old Testament believer. That the cleansing provided is an external cleansing, the ritual cleansing 
that uh, observance of, of an external law is not the inworking of God's grace in your life, not like we have in the church age. And so law did what it did to point to the coming Christ. And when Christ came, he fulfilled everything that those shadows were uh, portraying. And so it, it is with the sense of blood. Why was blood shed? Why is the uh, new covenant uh, inaugurated with the blood? Well, the first covenant was inaugurated with blood, and there was a reason for that. Blood speaks of the life, speaks of the soul, and Jesus gave his life. He laid down his soul so you and I could have eternal life and so that Israel could be cleansed and brought into their new covenant relationship in the millennial kingdom. Both aspects are important for us to understand. So let me just pick up a context here in verse 23 of Hebrews 9. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. That's talking about blood. And so the animal was killed, the blood was set aside, and blood would then be sprinkled or it would be smeared, it would be anointed on the altar, on the veil, be sprinkled before the veil. It would be applied to the mercy seat. It would be applied to the priests in their garments. It was applied to the book itself. The scroll of the, of the Mosaic Covenant had blood applied to it. And blood was very important. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, which we studied in verse 22. And so blood is a great picture. It's a picture of soul life. And it's the perfect picture to represent the reality. But it's not the reality. The reality is, although earthly things can be cleansed with blood, the heavenly things themselves must be cleansed with better sacrifices than these. So when Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the dead, he ascended to heaven and he had a cleansing ministry to undergo in heaven. He had to cleanse the heavenly temple, which we see in the early part of this chapter and we see at the end of this chapter. And so uh, we want to spotlight that again here this morning. Verse 11 says, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. He did not go into the earthly holy of holies. Had no business in there, wasn't qualified to go in there. But he went to heaven and he went into the heavenly holy of holies. Not, so uh, not made with hands, it's to say not of this creation. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Once for all. Once for all. It was his spiritual death on the cross that opened that door. And he doesn't have to do it year after year after year because it is once for all. The heavenly reality is cleansed and eternal redemption is purchased. All right, and so um, we have the how much more principle from verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The, the blood of bulls, rams, and goats could cleanse the bodies of Levitical priests, could cleanse them for liturgical service. How much more will the blood of Christ cleanse you and me, the Melchizedek priesthood, for spiritual service? The answer is infinitely more. How much more? Infinitely more. Because they weren't, they weren't prepared at all, not the way we are, for this living sacrifice ministry. And so, um, again, other highlights here in chapter 9 that just kind of take you down through the, um, 
the high priest who goes in with blood not his own, that's significant, blood not his own, and uh, every year he's got to do it again and again and again. So now down to the end of the chapter. Since the copies had to be cleansed with these things, the reality has to be cleansed with better things, and that's what Jesus did. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. It makes all the difference in the world whether you are in a replica or whether you're in the reality. Took my family to the Ronald Reagan Museum in January, and they have a replica uh, of the Oval Office. They have a replica of a, of a presidential podium with the, the uh, teleprompters to read from, and you can stand there in front of the presidential seal, and, uh, and you can make a speech as if you're the president, and your family can take pictures of you as if you're the president. But no one is fooled into thinking that by standing in this replica and acting like the president that it's the real thing, right? That I w I'm not the president. I don't have any business in the real Oval Office and the issues there. Jesus did not go into the replica. That's the point of Hebrews 9, that the replica served a purpose. It was pointing ahead to what Jesus would have to do because no human other than Jesus could do it. Only the God-man could do it, and he did. It also says... Again, so it's better sacrifices, not into the replica, but into the true one, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not only did he open the Holy of Holies, but he's presently there. Now he ever liveth to make intercession. He is seated at the Father's right hand. He appears to represent us. Remember, Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was never a high priest of the ironic Levitical priesthood of Israel's confession. He's the apostle and high priest of our confession, the body of Christ, the church age believer priests that we understand uh, as you and me today. All right. And uh, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Remember when the high priest went in, he had the names of the 12 tribes written on his ephod, written on his, on his garments, and he went in to represent Israel. Jesus stands before the Father representing us, the bride of Christ, in a very important application. Nor was it, verse 25, that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood not his own. This is why it's so superior. Because first of all, it's his blood, not an animal substitute. And then secondly, it's once and for all. It's not an annual, here we go again, ritual pointing ahead to a reality. It is the once and for all reality of our redemption. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once, once and for all, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And this is manifest. The Father displayed it. The Son displayed it. It's on exhibit for men and angels alike to observe that this once and for all sacrifice was satisfying to the Father. The whole doctrine of propitiation centers on the Father's satisfaction and acceptance of what the Son did when He went to the cross. All right, so He does not suffer often since the foundation of the world. He suffered once that He can reign forever. 
And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once. So this is the way it works. He identified with the human experience through physical birth. We were all physically born through a physical life, identifying with our our trials, our struggles, and even physical death. That becomes key. Remember, he died on the cross and he said the spiritual death is what purchased our redemption. And he said, it is finished. To tell us, die, it is finished. The work was done. The father was satisfied. He had laid down his life. He had taken his life back up again. Spiritual life. He said, it is finished. Okay. Then he breathed his last and died physically. Then he said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit, breathed his last, and died physically. And a lot of times we don't stop to think and ask, well, why? What's the point? Why? I mean, you said it is finished. You had the victory at the cross. Satan is disarmed. Sin is atoned for and, and, and redeemed. It is finished. Let me tell you, if I was Jesus, you know what I'd be doing? <laughs> okay? Because right about then is when the soundtrack would go into a real powerful victory march because I'd be coming off that cross in power and great glory (laughs) laying waste to every unbeliever around me but see that's not what Jesus did okay he was praying in fact father forgive them they know not what they do and when he had finished the the purpose for his spiritual death he then proceeded to accomplish additional purposes for his physical death his, phys- his burial, his ministry in the grave, his resurrection on the third day, the ascension on the basis of the resurrection then that establishes a pattern for us. Because remember, he's the forerunner. When he entered into the, the Holy of Holies in heaven, he did so as the forerunner. You know what that, you know what that means? <laughs> the forerunner doesn't get there by himself. He's the first one to get there. But then others follow. Others follow it's just, just the nature of the word. That's what it means. It's like when Mary gave birth to her firstborn son. You know what? There's other sons on the way. Okay? The forerunner means there's afterrunners coming behind him. And we all get to enter within the veil. What a glory. In the Old Testament, that high priest went in all by himself, came back out all by himself. And then he'd have to do it again next year. Or if he dies in the meantime, his son would have to do it the next year. Again and again, one guy all by himself. Jesus goes into the Holy of Holies and the heavenly places, and he opens it as the, as the forerunner, the firstborn among many brethren. We all now enter within the veil. We all now stand in the presence of God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ. What a, what a glory. That is our blessing in the church age as believer priests of the church age. All right. So to wrap up this chapter then and to move ahead to chapter 20, uh, to uh, chapter 10, we've got to unpack some important things here in verses 27 and 28 and take the time to do this. And we've got extra time today because I postponed communion until next week, made the executive decision that we'll have the Lord's table on Easter Sunday instead of our normal second Sunday of the month. So that gives us a few extra minutes this morning to get through these, uh, these verses. All right. Verse 27. 
Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also. The normal course of life is that you live, you die, and then you receive your judgment, which includes your eternal rewards, all right, which includes the application of glory for what you did in this life, all right? And so this is what we're looking at. Jesus, too, he lived his life, he died, he now gets this great reward. In fact, he gets everything. He is the heir of all things. He is now entitled to the new covenant. He's entitled to the kingdom. He's entitled to the glory. So Jesus is going to receive these things. Physical death, we saw this last week. Physical death places every man on the docket for their final temporal life examination. For you and I today, if you're a born-again believer in the church age, you are slated to attend the judgment seat of Christ. And you want to study that doctrine, you can get it in 1 Corinthians, you can get it in Romans. We've got booklets in the hall on the judgment seat of Christ. And uh, that's, that's where we're slated. If you're, if you're not a believer yet, though, if you're still an unbeliever in your sins, you're not going to go to the judgment seat of Christ. You're headed to the great white throne judgment. And that's a fearsome judgment, a terrible, a terrible judgment. You want no part of that judgment. So every human, though, is going to stand at a final temporal life examination. For you and I, it's the judgment seat of Christ. Same thing with Jesus. He lived, he died, he stood before his father. There's a marvelous picture of that in uh, Daniel where the Son of Man stands before the Ancient of Days and he is awarded everything. His victory on the cross, his humility before the Father gives him the maximum glorification. So great, Jesus Christ receives the greatest final temporal life examination as he is exalted by God the Father over every name that is named and he is appointed to be the eternal judge of all. Not only is he rewarded to the maximum, he gets to be the judge giving out every other reward. All judgment is given to the Son. And so the fact that second advent is a judgment requires these things to be unfolded in this way. So he receives the greatest final temporal life examination, okay? Now, if you ever want to do some more studies on this, I recommend it, Judgments and Viewpoints. There's a study we've done years ago. There's other material that's available because um, I think people do confuse the, the judgment seat of Christ with the great white throne. I think they also confuse the sheep and goat judgment from Matthew. I think that's a problem because the sheep and goat judgment is not a final exam. It's a midterm. The, the sheep and goat judgment is a pass-fail and uh, the, the unbelievers are being thrown into hell, and the believers get to enter, get to live on and enter into the millennial kingdom. So it's not an end-of-life evaluation. It's simply a pass-fail for, for crossing between the tribulation and the millennial kingdom. And yet, there's books written whereby they try to, people will conflate uh, sheep and goat judgment as if it's comparable to, to uh, judgment seat of Christ, and it's not. Anyway, there's more studies there. I recommend um, you look at John chapter 5 where it says all judgment is given to the Son and, uh, and then start to relate that to our role as the bride because we're the bride of Christ. We reign with Christ. We judge with Christ. We will judge angels. We will judge the world because we're in Christ and all judgment has been given to the Son. Important passages there. All right. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. What I want us to walk away with from this verse today is the recognition that second advent is almost nothing like first advent. 
The only similarity is, is that Jesus is coming, that God the Son, the God-man, is leaving heaven to come to earth. And so that, that's in common. First Advent, Second Advent have those two things in common. And not much beyond that, all right? Because the differences between First Advent and Second Advent are unbelievable, not only for the arrival, but then for the work assignment once he's here. See, and if you think about it, it's, it's a glorious thing. And, and particularly since you and I are uniquely suited after the fact, we've got the church age has a hindsight capacity to look back to first advent and look forward to second advent. We're right in between the two. We, we, we can look back in the Bible and see what Jesus did when he was here. And we can look forward. Again, the Bible tells us what he will do when he comes back. And we're situated in between. The bride of Christ is in between, and so we're very unique in that way. Israel was looking forward at both Advents and never had a clue that it was two Advents. Most of their prophecies were actually blended into single prophecies of the coming of Messiah. And so the idea that he's coming twice was not clearly revealed in the Old Testament. So the differences between the Advents are huge. The first advent of Jesus Christ dealt with the sin issue. And it made no effort for world judgment. And I want us to recognize this. The first advent of Jesus Christ dealt with the sin issue. He didn't come to judge the world, but that the world through him would be saved. That is significant. And so let's look at these. Isaiah 53, 12. Join me if you would. Either flip your pages or tap your glass. unroll your scrolls if you're really old school. All right. You know, in Isaiah 53, we have this suffering servant and um, his humility, his, uh, he had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. So the virgin birth, the, the childhood, the manger, the, the childhood, the growing up, that's not happening in Second Advent. All right? No stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He wouldn't thrive well in modern politics. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Really intimate with grief, if you think about it. The acquaintance, the intimacy that he has here because he was accepting all of ours. Despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows. Like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. All of this is first advent. When he comes back, let me tell you, it'll be with power and great glory. There will be a stately form. There will be a majesty, the likes of which this world has never seen. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Now, crucifixion was unknown in Isaiah's day, but he wrote about it. Crucifixion was unknown in David's day, but he wrote about it. It's amazing, 700 years ahead of time, 1,000 years ahead of time, 
crucifixion was recorded in the canon of Scripture. All right, it was developed by the Persians in a primitive form and then perfected by the Romans in the, uh, the form that was fulfilled by Jesus, but it was predicted by Isaiah in 700 B.C. and by David in 1000 B.C. when you read Psalm 22. Pierced through and crushed, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. By his scourging, we are healed. Each, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, for the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So this is first advent. He's dealing with sin. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Guess what? Second advent, he's opening his mouth. In fact, there's a sword coming out of that mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter. That's first advent. It's a lion when he comes back. The lion of, of Judah to conquer at second advent. Like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. See, he had to judge sin so he could be the judge of all. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, his generation, and they, they took full accountability for it, but for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. So identified with humanity in dealing with sin, he also identified with Israel in dealing with the curse of the law to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him. Now remember, the piercing is different from the crushing. The Lord was pleased to crush him. God the Father was pleased to crush God the Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. The son had to volitionally be a participant. He was willing to do the will of the father. He said, not my will, but thine be done. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. The good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. If he doesn't suffer at the cross, he can't get the kingdom. Without the cross, there is no crown. Understand that. It's necessary. That's why when Satan was tempting him, it was so insidious because he was offering him the kingdom and all these glories and all this stuff. And he says, you don't even have to go to the cross. Just bow down and worship me, is what Satan says. Seems like a small price to pay. And if you think about it, it's worth it, right? You don't suffer on the cross. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, right? He's not going to do that. To worship the Lord God and serve Him only. As a result of the anguish of His soul, the soul anguish of Jesus Christ having been crushed. This was the volitional battle He fought in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before He went to the cross. When the full weight of human sin was revealed to Him, when He was given full awareness of every transgression He would accept the payment for the next day, it crushed Him, but He did it anyway. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. God the Father was satisfied. He said, now you're qualified to be the justifier. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. 
He has to learn. He learns obedience through the things that he suffers. He learns. It's his knowledge of all human sin qualifies him to be the justifier. My servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. And I hope we pay attention to these things and I hope we learn the depths of these things because they're critical. And I think sometimes we conflate them. And so I would encourage you, just take a piece of paper and draw a thing down the middle of it and have one side and have another side and say, and, and just think it through. On, on one side of your paper, say, what qualifies him to be the sacrifice? The offering, the spotless lamb, right? Well, he has to be sinless. He has to be perfect. He has to be righteous. And you can list those things and you can put the scriptures down for those things. They're easy to find. Some of them are right here in this chapter, all right? But then on the other side of the paper, what qualifies him to be the priest? What qualifies him to be the justifier? Because he is both the offering and the offerer. And it's a different set of qualifications. Being sinless and perfect, being innocent like Adam and Eve were innocent, being sinless and perfect qualified him to be the spotless lamb. But what was it that qualified him to satisfy God the Father in the justifying sacrificial work? Well, we're told right here, by his knowledge. Knowledge that's only gained through suffering. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant will justify the many. That's the qualification that goes on the right side of your piece of paper. Qualifies him to be the justifier as well as the offering. Yes, he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out his soul to death. That's his nephesh his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. The one man in the history of humanity that didn't need to die, and he did. He took our place. Not going to do that at Second Advent. Guess what? <laughs> That's a once and for all sacrifice. Second Advent will have no cross. All right. But the first advent dealt with a sin issue. How about Matthew chapter 20? Matthew chapter 20. And verse 28. There's a context for this, but we'll... Uh, <laughs> it's curious. So James and John is two two of his closest disciples, and their mother is sister with his mother, so that means they're cousins of Jesus. And, and they get this request. They're trying to score uh, special seating in the kingdom. They want to sit on his right and his la on his left, and, and uh, they get their mom in on the act to try to get this request. <laughs> and uh, it says in verse 24, hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers, which you might imagine. I think they were indignant because they didn't think of it first. They were all fighting with each other to who was going to be the greatest. But Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. The maximum re reward is given to the maximum humble servant, which is Jesus. Our rewards are proportional 
to our humble servant attitude. The more humble, the more servant uh, attitude we are, the greater will be our reward. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. So if you're dedicated to being better than everybody else, you're going to have a pretty pathetic eternal inheritance in the millennial kingdom and beyond. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's first advent. It was humility, it was service, and it was to deal with the sin issue, to give his life a ransom for many. First advent. Second advent's a different story. Because he was humble, he will be exalted. Everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Satan is the prototype for the maximum self-exaltation. That's why he has the greatest eternal judgment. 1 John 3, 5 and 4, 14. First John 3, 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. In the Old Testament, sins weren't taken away. Sins were just covered. They were atoned for. They were covered, not removed. But when the Lamb of God came, John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He came, again, 1 John 3, 5, when, that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. 1 John 4, 14, We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. First advent, he saved through his sacrifice. Second advent, He's going to save through his conquering. Big difference. First advent of Jesus Christ dealt with a sin issue and made no effort for world judgment. John 3, 16 and 17. John 18, I'm sorry, John 8, 15. John 12, 47. That's why the Gospel of John just has so much of his truth. John 3, 16. He didn't come to judge the world. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Now, you can't say that about Second Advent. John 3.17 cannot be accepted as correct in, in the context of the second advent. Because when he does send the Son into the world the second time, it will be to judge the world because he's been appointed to judge the living and the dead. But first advent, God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. John eight fifteen. John 8, 15. Here's this chapter where I don't think it's original to the Gospel of John, but the pericope of the adulterous woman here. They drag this woman in to get him to judge her as if he was there to judge. Okay. And uh, I notice this woman was caught in the act of adultery, but the man wasn't dragged forward. Where's the man? I thought you said you caught her in the act. <laughs> It wasn't adultery if there was no man. I mean, what, what are you talking about here? If you caught her in the act, where's the man she got caught with? 
Anyway, and it's not even a legal proceeding. It's a mob action. You want to stone a, a murderer? You want to stone a, uh, somebody worthy of capital punishment, which in the Old Testament was murder, adultery, rape, homosexuality, uh, witchcraft. If you're going to apply capital punishment on the basis of the laws of capital punishment, then you've you got to be the governmental authority to do that. You can't just be the mob action trying to stone a woman and let the man off the hook. That's not my point anyway. That's the, <laughs> that's the, those are the introductory verses here in John chapter 8. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me is, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you're testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And that's wrong. Single testimony is not automatically false. It's just single testimony must be corroborated in order to be accepted in a judicial proceeding. So Jesus answered and said to them, even if I testify about myself, because I'm not doing that, but even if I did, I'm still true because I know what I'm talking about. I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. So you can't tell me I'm wrong because you don't even know what you're talking about. Then he says, you judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. He didn't come to judge. He didn't come to judge not that woman, not the world, not anybody. He came to seek and to save the lost. He came to take away sin. That was first advent. Then he says, and even if I do judge, my judgment is true. He will get around to that in second advent. And uh, describes the father's testimony and the testimony of scripture. Hebrews 12, 47, I'm not Hebrews, John 12, 47. Jesus, in verse 44, Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. Faith in Christ is fundamentally faith in the Father who sent Christ. The acceptance of the sacrifice on your behalf acceptance of the faithful promise that God has made. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. It is the only provision. If you don't believe Christ, you're still in darkness. There is no second path, third path, fourth path. There is one way to eternal life. I have come as a light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. First advent was not here for judgment. Second advent, though, oh, look out. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has, has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. When the books are opened and the single book is opened, the Lamb's Book of Life, when your name is not in the Lamb's Book of Life, that's the criteria for your eternity in the lake of fire. Second advent of Jesus Christ will feature no sin offering, but global salvation and judgment. The second advent of Jesus Christ will feature no sin offering. And it says, without reference to sin, and in part, I'm not really fond of that rendering, that translation, uh, without reference to sin. I get it because um, my sins won't be brought up, of course, but 
the reference to is, is just helpful words that were plugged in there to try to flesh out the, the Greek that's not there. Um, but the first coming was as a sin sacrifice, having been offered once to bear the sin of many, will come again a second time without sin or without a sin offering. The sin offering is a once and for all offering. There won't, doesn't have to be another sin offering to those who eagerly await him. The second advent of Jesus Christ will feature no sin offering, but global salvation and judgment. This time there's all kinds of judgment. This time there is no unbeliever, assuming, of course, there won't be many that survive the tribulation anyway. You know, when you read Revelation, you can't help but notice that every time another seal gets broken or another bowl gets thrown down to the earth, I mean, stuff's happening where a third of the earth is killed, and then a third of the earth is killed, and a third of the earth is killed, and we're running out of, you know, thirds of the earth. It's, it's just a third of the remainder. I get that. But as more and more people are dying, and by, by the conclusion of the Armageddon campaign, the blood is so high it reaches the horse's bridles. I mean, it is, it is staggering. The survival rate of the, uh, whatever the global population is at the end of the tribulation, uh, the, the remnant that survives it will, will stand for judgment. And that's where sheep and goat judgment come in for the Gentiles. All right. Israel has a separate private judgment in the wilderness. And at the, on those judgments, the unbelievers who happen to survive get executed. Jesus Christ right there slays them at the beginning of his reign. No unbeliever will enter into the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. So he divides them sheep and goats on the right and left, and every goat's going to hell. Only the born-again believers can enter into the joy of your master, enter into the kingdom as it's described. So the second advent of Jesus Christ will feature no sin offering. Let's look at Isaiah 25. I like these are Old Testament, New Testament passages. Isaiah 25. And verse 9. It's a marvelous chapter. And... Um, without reading the, uh, all of it, which is, let me tell you, it's just a uh, context of the millennial kingdom. Plans formed long ago in perfect faithfulness that are now coming into fulfillment. And um, verse 6, the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet. Okay, Yahweh Tsevayoth, the Lord of hosts, that's his military name. That's his commanding officer name as the commander-in-chief of the armies. And so he's got to conquer at Armageddon. First Advent didn't have to do this. First Advent was babe in the manger. Second Advent is Yahweh Tsevayoth, the Lord God of the armies. We'll prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples of this, on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, refined aged wine. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering, which is over all peoples, even the veil, which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Much of this is actually uh, new heavens, new earth, fullness of time fulfillment rather than millennial fulfillment. 
Verse 9, and it will be said in that day. Remember, the day of the Lord is the tribulation and the millennium combined. It will be said in that day, behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. All right. It's a marvelous context, a global salvation, a geopolitical salvation, in addition to the spiritual salvation we have by having our sins forgiven by the kinsman redeemer and his work on the cross. Are we good with this? Do we struggle sometimes because saved is used in different ways? And I think when you blend those and you confuse them, people end up in all kinds of trouble. They end up with all kinds of confusion. They read a passage like the one who endures to the end shall be saved. And they get so wrapped around in the axle in a, in a terrible way, failing to see the tribulational context of a political rescue from Antichrist, the deliverance of the kingdom, in terms very similar here to Isaiah 25. Luke chapter 1, we saw last hour, we get to see it again this hour. How about that? The song of Zacharias. You think I might have planned it that way or something. Luke chapter 1, 69 through 75. This is Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. And really what we have here is a blending of both First Advent and Second Advent messages, which from uh, an Old Testament standpoint is, is all they knew. They didn't recognize that the sin issue would be dealt with in the First Advent and then the kingdom, the national salvation would follow. But the horn is the language of kingdom authority in the house of David, his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. This is Israel's national salvation from the Gentile uh, dominion they've been under ever since Nebuchadnezzar. The times of the Gentiles and the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. continue to this day. Israel has a future salvation, a national salvation. And again, let me ask, the... Um, Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Was that your experience when you believed in Jesus to receive eternal life? <laughs> no. It's not dealing with the personal salvation and redemption of your personal sins and your transference from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of, of light. It's not a personal redemption salvation context. It is Israel's national salvation, the establishment of the Davidic throne for the Jewish kingdom in the millennium. And it goes on all the way down to verse 75, what the second advent's going to be about. And it's without reference to sin. It's without another sin offering because he already accomplished it in his first advent sin offering. He already accomplished the, the basis for his role as the mediator of the new covenant. He already serves as the mediator of the new covenant. He is free to bless Israel with it when he returns because the sacrifice is, uh, is done. Also, judgment. He comes for global salvation and judgment. John 5, 22. So can you visualize world peace yet? 
Everybody that has those bumper stickers on their car, you know, you just love to attach a, an appendix bumper sticker for them. Just tack it on the edge of their sticker. Visualize world peace through the military victory of Jesus Christ at the Battle of Armageddon. Then I can visualize it. Prior to that, uh, no. They'll cry out, peace, peace, there is no peace. They'll cry out, peace and safety, and the destroyer comes with a flood. So I can visualize a global salvation. John 5.22 is a time of salvation and judgment. Here's a context. I love this. This is um, back to verse 19. This is why they, they wanted to stone him. He was making himself out to be equal to God, calling God his father, claiming to be the son of God, which of course he was. <laughs> Blasphemy unless it's true. And um, so they want to kill him. They want to kill him for what they were calling blasphemy. And he testifies to the Father here. Verse 20, the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. Second Advent will be greater than First Advent. And even the, uh, the Bride of Christ, the, what we do, as Jesus said, is greater than what he did in his First Advent ministry. And just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. Not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Got to mark that verse down, all judgment to the Son. All right, and you know, connect that with Daniel chapter 7, connect that with the Son of Man presenting himself before the Ancient of Days. You see how these things come together. So that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. All judgment's been given to the Son. And he will inflict it. Not today. Not today. He's still sitting at the Father's right hand, waiting. Not today. We're waiting today for the trumpet for, for him to call us home. The, the day of judgment and wrath is at least seven years away. All right. Acts 10.42. And here's Peter in a Gentile house, completely uncomfortable, eating food he's never eaten his entire life, <laughs> complaining about it, telling God a couple of times that he's wrong, and then finally doing what he's told. And he's having ministry with Cornelius, and um, he's got this marvelous message here. So verse... Um, 34, opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. See, in the Old Testament, you could have God-fearing Gentiles. And Cornelius, I believe, was a God-fearing Gentile. And he was already born again before this chapter even started. But he's got to get brought into the body of Christ. He's got to receive the Holy Spirit. He's got to be added to the uh, redeemed of the church age with uh, the, the church age filling of the Holy Spirit. So he's got to be brought in here. Every nation, in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. So Gentile nations will now be accepted in the millennial kingdom. 
the word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee after the baptism which John proclaimed. How does Cornelius and his household know this? Why are they up to speed on the whole life of Christ teaching? From baptism to ascension. You know Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit, with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us, who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God. Notice, the one who has been appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. If he doesn't die on the cross and achieve that victory, he's not entitled to this grace. He's not entitled to this blessing. The maximum humility is now rewarded with a maximum glory. So he is appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. And this is what we're doing. This is why we're saved in the church age. This is what we proclaim. The excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. But he has been appointed to judge the living and the dead. So if you find that you're giving the gospel to someone and um, the idea of their accountability before God becomes paramount, I think in a lot of cases the, the most militant atheists are very fervent in their profession of atheism, even though they don't really believe it. They profess it night and day. Um, I, my sense is, is that it, they, don't, they don't want the accountability. So if there is no God, they're not accountable. If there is no God, there's no judgment. If there is no God, there's no absolute standard of righteousness and then I can do whatever I want to do. I become my own God, my own standard. But if there is a God and he is the judge, then um, as an unbeliever, those folks are in trouble. You know, how much longer are they going to wait? Today may be their only day. Today their soul may be required of them. If this is the day of their physical death, this is their last day to get saved. There's no post-mortem evangelism. No second chance out of purgatory. Okay? It's given unto man to, once to die. After that, the judgment. Thank you. All right. See, Hebrews just has so much to say about this. So he's been appointed. How about Acts 17? Paul is preaching and he gets laughed at. The sermon on Mars Hill. There were a few that wanted to hear him again, but most were sneering. And he's looking around, and they're very religious people. They're so religious, they cover all their bases. They have altars to everybody, including ones they don't know about yet, but they just want to, you know, just on the safe side to the unknown God. And, and Paul says, let me tell you, here's the God you don't know about. He's nearby and he's knowable. You can grope for him and he'll let you find him. All right. 
So here's he standing in the midst of the Oropagus. And he says, I observe you're very religious in all respects. Now you need to get saved. <laughs> religious people go to hell. You need to get saved. So he tells about the unknown God. Let me tell you about this unknown God. He doesn't need your food. He doesn't need your worship. He gives everybody everything. It says in verse 26, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. All of humanity is in Adam in one form or fashion. We're all in some, some form of descent from Adam. And we're presently organized in the nations we're organized in, but those change too from time to time. He, uh, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. All right, this is His message. Verse 30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Understand, next week is Easter Sunday. It's the day we commemorate the resurrection. Unless you're Orthodox, then it's the week after that. But that's all right. On Easter Sunday, we proclaim the resurrection. Not only the resurrection, but what comes with that? Judgment. The appointed judge of the living and the dead is the one who was dead and lives evermore. He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Judgment day is coming. Judgment day is coming. Mock it if you will, but God is not mocked. And the man that's been appointed is the man that died for your sins. That's our message on Easter Sunday and any Sunday and any day of the week. And when they heard of the resurrection, some began to sneer. But others say, we shall hear you again concerning this. Which is kind of unusual. The, the, the Greeks, uh, they, they liked new things. They liked, you know, novelty. They liked stuff they hadn't heard before. The fact that they wanted an encore, they wanted a repeat performance, that, that was interesting. That sparked something there. At least in a few. All right. Well, there's... Uh, Jesus is the judge. How about 2 Timothy 4.1? I solemnly charge you in the presence of God. This is usually an ordination message. This is a charge to a Bible teacher, to a pastor. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. Let me tell you, the judge of the living is a lot more pleasant. <laughs> okay, you and I at the at the judgment seat of Christ, we're the we're the living. We have e eternal life in Christ, and we like that judgment. But the judge of the dead, as they get resurrected unto wrath in the judgment there, by his appearing and by his kingdom. So when is judgment going to come? At his appearing and at his kingdom. Not first advent, second advent. First Peter four five. By the way, Sandy's father, Pastor uh, Emil Schmidt, is the one who gave my ordination charge in, from that text, from 2 Timothy chapter 4, and uh, 25 years ago, 
And um, the video we thought was lost has been found. I'm so excited that it was, and it's been not only found, but it's been converted to digital. It's been preserved now, and it's no longer in that old, whatever that format videotape was. So anyway, I'm gonna, we're going to make it available somehow, put it on the screen, or let folks watch it, because it's, it's more than an hour long. There's Emil's message, there's John Eichmann's message, there's Ralph Vaughn's message. Good stuff. Everybody was a lot younger back then. First Peter 4, 5. First Peter 4, 1 says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. You and I, we've got some suffering in the flesh to do too. So arm yourself with it. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lust of man, but for the will of God. So here we are purchased by Jesus Christ. We should be walking in the newness of life. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. Whatever time you had before you got saved, that's long enough. Having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, abominable idolatries. And in all this, they are surprised you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. Say, you used to run with them, but you don't run with them anymore. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. All right? The Bible doesn't beat us up for our past and what we did, because that's forgiven, that's dealt with, that's done. But whatever it was, that's enough of that. Okay? Long enough. Whatever that was. If, however old you were saved or whatever's in your past, leave it in the past. From today moving forward, it's in the newness of life. Because we all will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead. That though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. All right. What a day. He's going to come back. What a day that's going to be. And, and second advent is so different from first advent. Second, first advent was by himself in a manger. You know, his mom, his dad, some sheep and goats, whatever animals in the manger wise men showed up a couple years later um but when he comes back second advent every eye will see him he's going to be riding on a white horse the armies of heaven following him on white horses do you know how to ride a horse all right maybe go to camp penile or go to balcony springs or somewhere get some remedial horseback training the whole world's going to see him judgment follows what a difference there's a, um, I recommend it. There's a song, a gospel song. If you want to jot a note, you can find it on YouTube. Um, when He Came. It's called When He Came. Ernie Haas and Signature Sound Quartet. Um, it's called When He Came. And it's about this whole message. In fact, I didn't have to preach today. I could have just played the song for you. First Advent, Second Advent. When He Came. And the music too is powerful because I think it's, it's kind of light and it's soft, gentle in describing first advent. When he came, he spent his first night on a bed of hay. Okay? He had no stately form or majesty. No one knew who he really was. Okay? But when he comes again, and this is where the song shifts, when he comes again, 
and it shifts and the lyrics shift and the music shifts and it gets powerful, it gets triumphant when he comes again in power and great glory, when he comes to conquer, when he comes to reign. And it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a neat song. I recommend it. All right. Thank you, Father, for this morning. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for the distinctions of First Advent and Second Advent. Thank you for giving us in the church age uh, the perspective with the Hebrew canon of Scripture, the Greek canon of Scripture, the perspective to see the finished work and the unfinished work yet to come. And Father, it is our delight as uh, those who walk in the newness of life to declare the excellencies of Him, the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into light, the one who died and rose again on our behalf. Father, I pray on as Resurrection Sunday approaches and really every day, that we in the newness of life might be uh, ambassadors for Jesus, begging on behalf of you, Father, to this lost and dying world that, that they be reconciled unto God. And Father, I'm preaching a wedding this coming weekend on uh, Saturday coming up. And we know, Father, there will be unbelievers present that uh, they, they don't go to church, wouldn't ever go to church, but uh, they'll go to a wedding or they'll go to a funeral or they'll go to places and these are the venues, Father, where we, can, uh, where we can reach people we wouldn't reach otherwise. And so I'm praying even now, and I ask my flock to join with me, praying even now that uh, that wedding service on Saturday, that the veil of darkness can be pierced, that the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ might shine forth in such a powerful way that uh, those who are hostile normally might on that occasion be broken and softened and prepared in whatever misery it takes to prepare them, Father. Prepare them to hear the truth. And as much as they hate it, open their eyes to see it for what it is. Father, I thank you and I praise you in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.